Good morning. This is a little bit too far back. There we go. Well, it's a pleasure to see you here today. I'm always thrilled on Sunday morning. Sunday is my favorite day of the week because I get to worship with my brothers and sisters and I get to raise my voice high and sing praises to God with you. And that is an amazing thing. My name is Jason Averill. I am the assistant pastor here at Grace. And uh, we have been in a sermon series for this fall called Who is Jesus? We're exploring through uh, the Gospel of Matthew that question. Who is our Savior, Jesus? What can we get to know about him through this gospel? Last week, Wilson, he taught us through Matthew chapter 10 on true gospel ministry. And following that, we get the next episode in, in Jesus' life and ministry. And this is about doubt. In particular, it's about what we do with our doubts. So let's pray. And then we can start. Father, Lord, we thank you for Sunday. We thank you, Lord, for setting aside a day for us to worship you, a day for us to be rejuvenated by your word, a day that we can dwell in your, in your presence and we can feel you around us. Jesus, we thank you for being here, for leading us in worship, for being that true worship leader, and for showing us who the Father is. We praise you, Lord, that as we see you, we see the Father, and we know who God is. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here. We do ask that you be very alive and active in our congregation. Help us to see our Savior. Help me to preach your word. Keep me from speaking anything false. And Lord, illumine our hearts. Direct our gaze constantly toward Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. So like I said, we're going to be talking about doubt today. And in particular, what, what do we do with our doubts you know, doubts, it's kind of like this ordinary but uncomfortable thing that's part of the Christian life. They creep in as we minister to each other. They creep in as we go through this life. And we try to have strong faith and we try to walk. We try to walk and follow Jesus. And yet, many times, we are plagued with doubts. One day we seem to have a handle on the truth. We ha seem to have strong faith. And then the next moment our faith seems to evaporate. It feels at those times like all we have left is doubt. And there are many reasons for this, many. You know, I'll, I'll just mention a few here. One is because of suffering. Suffering can come in. And as we experience the suffering and misery of this life, we can begin to doubt that God is actually in control. We can even doubt his love for us. Another cause is our sin. As, as we sin and as we see our own sin before us, 
we can doubt that God loves us, that he would love a sinner like us. And to make matters worse, we have Satan right there, right there next to us. And Satan is whispering in our ears on those two issues. He's accusing God to us, and he's saying, God doesn't love you. He's saying, God, God, he's not really in control. He can't protect you from this world. He can't protect you from these miseries. He can't protect you from suffering. Or maybe he can, but he just doesn't want to. Even worse, Satan will come to us and whisper, you know, I, I, God doesn't even exist. More than that, he'll accuse us to ourselves. He'll use our own sin, and he'll say to us, God can't love a sinner like you. You're not a believer. If you were a believer, you would have your life right. You wouldn't keep falling into the same sin pattern again and again, and you wouldn't have these doubts if you were a believer. And often... Unfortunately, it doesn't end with one little doubt. It's not one mere thought. Instead, it feels like we're caught up in this maelstrom that just keeps going around in tighter and tighter circles, sucking us down into this ocean of despair. So what do we do? What do we do when doubts creep in on us? What do we do when Satan arms himself with our doubts and attacks us? That's what we'll talk about today. Our sermon passage today is Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 24. Please stand as we read God's word. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. I tell you, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way before me? Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he's Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. 
For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazan, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Thus far, the reading of God's word. All men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's word stands forever. You may be seated. So what do we do when our doubts creep in? Today we'll look at three things that answer that question. We'll look at John's doubt, we'll look at the people's doubt, and we'll look at the Pharisees' disbelief. It's John's doubt, the people's doubt, and the Pharisees' disbelief. So what is John's doubt? What's that all about? So let's set the stage for what's going on, just to kind of refresh you and get you into where we are right now. So Jesus has just finished instructing the disciples on their mission. And what were his instructions? This is in chapter 10, starting in verse 5. It says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. And so, Jesus has just sent his disciples out on a mission, and they are to go before him and proclaim in the cities in Galilee, and they are to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They are to act as heralds of the kingdom. And he will then, as we'll see in the text, he follows them, and he preaches in those cities after they go and announce him. Now, it's interesting that, you know, they are actually heralding Jesus' coming. This is very similar to what John was doing. He was the one who was crying out in the desert. He was the one that was making straight the paths of the Lord, crying that out. He was the one heralding the Messiah. So what happened to John? Well, we see in the text he was imprisoned. He was in prison. So King Herod had an affair. He had an affair with his brother. I'm sorry, not his brother. <laughs> his brother's wife. His brother Philip was married to Herodias. And Herod had an affair with her. And then he divorced his, his wife. And he married Herodias. And John rightly decried that. He went out 
and he preached against Herod and said that it is unlawful to do that. You cannot do that. And, excuse me, for his trouble, Herod imprisoned John. He imprisoned him in a mountain fortress called Machaeus. And so he's there suffering, and he's in, he's in prison in the Burning Mountains. I don't know where the Burning Mountains are, but it's an interesting name and kind of brings to mind the suffering that he might be going through there. And so we see in verse 2 and 3 his doubt start. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent words to his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So he's in prison, and he hears what Jesus is doing. He hears about the deeds of Jesus, that Jesus is going around, and he's healing the sick. He's healing the blind. He's casting out demons. And this causes him to doubt. Why in the world, why in the world would he doubt when Jesus is working miracles? That just seems weird. Out of all people, out of all people, John the Baptist should have had unshakable faith. You know, as a baby in the womb, he heard Mary speak. And when he heard Mary speak, he knew his Savior was near and he leaped in her, in her belly. He leapt in her womb at the sound of her voice. He was there, he baptized Jesus, and he saw the Holy Spirit come down upon Jesus after his baptism, and he heard audibly God say, this is my beloved son. Not only that, when people started going to Jesus instead of him, and John's disciples were kind of upset by that, what did he say? He said, it's right, it's right, because he's the coming one. It is right that they go to him and not to me. He must increase, I must decrease. His faith seems like it should be unassailable. So why did he doubt when he heard that Jesus was performing these miracles? It's just weird. Well, it's probably actually because of two reasons. So the first is the message that he was given from God. So if you remember all the way back to Matthew chapter 3, we read his message, and I'll read it now. It says, starting in verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The message that he was given by God was a message of repentance and judgment. People were to repent because God was coming. The kingdom of heaven was breaking in, and his judgment was coming upon the world. And as far as he could tell... Jesus, in his healing of people, raising people from the dead, 
he wasn't bringing that judgment. He wasn't fulfilling that prophecy that John himself had received from the Lord. And he was confused. And then on top of that, he was suffering. He was suffering in prison and Satan was attacking him just like Satan attacks you or I. Satan went to him whispering to him, accusing Jesus to him, saying he's not the Messiah. He's not doing what he should. Healing, what's that? It's about judgment. And so John sends to Jesus and says, are you the Messiah? And how does Jesus respond to this? You know, does he say, how dare you ask me that question? That's probably what we would say. No, no, he responds gently. He responds graciously. Luke tells us a little bit more uh, about this story in Luke chapter 7. And in Luke, we see the disciples get to Jesus and they ask this question. And before answering it, he actually invites them to stay and witness the miracles performed in their midst. He gives them a demonstration of what he's doing. And then... Even though it's confusing here, he sends back the same report that John already had. It's a very similar report. What does he say? He says, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Why did he give that same report that John had already heard that had prompted his doubts? Well, it's because of the, the structure of what he says that we know this, but he's actually referencing a part of the Bible. He's referencing Isaiah's prophecies. And in particular, he's referencing the prophecy that Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 35 where healing would come to the, to the land and that lepers would be healed and the blind would see and the deaf would hear. And then that part in Isaiah 61, Isaiah 61.1, where he says that the poor have good news preached to them. The prophecies are about the coming Messiah. And it's interesting that, you know, right after 61, which was the last thing that he referenced, you know, just a little bit down the road in Isaiah 63, we actually have a picture of God's coming judgment. And it's in essence that he's saying to John, test me. Test me. Look at Scripture. Remember what the prophecies actually say about me. The prophecies proclaim that the Messiah who comes will be healing the land. And then he will bring judgment. John has doubts, and he goes to Jesus to them to Jesus for an answer. And you can kind of hear in his voice, I mean, you kind of have to imagine it, but I hear in his voice that age-old saying, I believe, help my unbelief. So John's disciples, they head back, and Jesus speaks to the crowd concerning John. And that's, again, that's odd. But why did he do that? Well, this episode happened out in the open. 
This was something that everybody in the crowd witnessed. John's disciples going to Jesus actually asking, why are you doing these things? Are you actually the Messiah? And so, as people's hearts throughout all of the Bible are just an open book to Jesus, he sees what their hearts are feeling. He looks at the crowd and he sees that many of them, many of them are starting to doubt. And they're starting to doubt John as a prophet. If John really spoke to God, wouldn't he already know they were thinking, perhaps? Wouldn't he already know that Jesus was the Messiah? And we see kind of in live action how one person's doubts can actually be used to seed other people's doubts by Satan. If Satan can't discredit Jesus to John, ultimately, he'll settle for discrediting John to the crowd. And by extension of John's testimony about Jesus. If he can discredit John and his testimony about Jesus, then it discredits Jesus. So Jesus moves to nip that bud before it blossoms. And we read in verse 7, As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A reed shaken by the wind. The wind. Was John a reed? Did, uh, did John tremble at the mere passing of the wind? No. No, John isn't somebody who has weak faith. He isn't someone who meekly proclaims the word of God. He actually boldly proclaims the word of God, even when he's proclaiming it against the king of the land and will be imprisoned. Jesus continues, What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. No, they didn't go out to see John dressed in soft clothing. No. John dressed in camel's hair. It was rough and scratchy. It wasn't, it was not the garments of like, say, the chief priests or the Pharisees. No, it was the garments reminiscent of what Elijah would have worn. And unlike the chief priests, he was out in the desert. He was not in king's houses. And right now, he was in a king's prison, not in a king's house. Jesus continues, What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way before you? Who will prepare your way before you? Yeah. No. They knew he was a prophet. That's who they went out to see. And he is calling them to remember that, to remember who John is, to remember how <clears throat> he proclaims the word of God to remember how he testifies to the truth. And he's saying, remember the truth. Fight against Satan by remembering the truth. And then he continues, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now 
the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. John is the greatest of the prophets. Nobody has arisen that is greater than John here. He is Elijah who is to come, and he is preparing the way for the Lord. And Jesus says, you really shouldn't find it surprising. You shouldn't find it surprising that he suffers violence and persecution. You shouldn't find that surprising. That should not invalidate his ministry for you because ever since he came, violent men have been trying to lay hold of the kingdom of heaven. They've been attacking it. It shouldn't be surprising to you. Do not doubt. And there's a foreshadowing here of what Jesus will suffer as well, a foreshadow of the cross, that as the kingdom of heaven comes in, the violence escalates. And it's not only that they attack John, but they also attack Jesus. But Jesus continues, you shouldn't find John's doubt surprising either. No, he is the greatest prophet so far, and that's true. But he is the least in the kingdom of heaven. Even though he's the greatest prophet, there are things that he doesn't understand yet. What does it mean that he is the least in the kingdom of heaven? It means that all of God's revelation is not accessible to him. He doesn't know. He doesn't know what Jesus is coming to do. He doesn't know that Jesus has come to take the sins from the people and to die on the cross and give him give the people his righteousness. He doesn't know that. And so the least Christian, the Christian with the weakest faith in the kingdom of heaven is a better prophet than John because of that, because we have the fullness of God's revelation and we can actually proclaim what God's word proclaims, that Jesus came to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. because you know what Jesus came to do for you. Dear Christian, though you might have doubts, though you might have the weakest of faith, you are greater than John the Baptist. You are a greater prophet than he is. Simply because you know the totality of God's revelation. Not everyone in the crowd, though, was suffering from mere doubt. Some had crossed over into disbelief. So, kind of what's the difference between doubt and disbelief and how I'm phrasing it here? Um, so, Dan Doriani says it like this. He says that if you have a scale and you have belief on one end and you have unbelief or disbelief on the other, doubt would be the distance in between. That if you have faith and faithlessness, doubt would occupy the space in between. And doubt itself is seeking an answer so that you can believe. You're asking a question because you found a difficulty in your faith and you want to believe and you are going to Jesus and you are asking that question so that you can believe, so that your faith can be bolstered. Whereas disbelief is a skepticism that will never be satisfied by any answer. 
There's nothing you can say to answer it. And Jesus addresses that here. He starts speaking to another group in the crowd. And in Matthew, it isn't quite clear who he's speaking to. He could just be speaking to the crowd in general, but it becomes uh, a lot more clear in Luke's passage. Luke chapter 7, starting in 29. He said, oh, we'll back up to 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, the tax co- <clears throat> and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And so it becomes clear that he's speaking now to the Pharisees and the lawyers, the Pharisees and the scribes. And the people included here in, in the previous category, the people who believe but have doubts, they include general people, they include tax collectors. They were coming to John for repentance and they were baptized with that baptism of repentance. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected it. They would not repent. They would not be baptized in that way because they didn't see that they needed it. And so he addresses the Pharisees and their followers here. Verse 16. He says, But what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We have played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. They couldn't be satisfied. John came preaching repentance. He was austere. He was an ascetic. He kept to himself. He was in the desert. He didn't eat normal food. He ate locusts dipped in honey. He didn't drink wine. And they called him demonic. They said he had a demon. And Jesus came both eating and drinking normal food and wine. And he hung out with tax collectors and sinners because they were the ones coming to him. And they called him a glutton and a drunkard. There was no pleasing them. Both preached a message of repentance. John, because of the coming wrath. Jesus, because the kingdom of heaven was breaking in. And there was good news if you repented. Jesus brought healing with him. John brought condemnation, but neither was accepted. Nothing was good enough for the Pharisees. And because of this, because nothing was good enough, but they persisted in his unbelief, Jesus levies this super harsh criticism against them. What does he say? He brings up the cities that he has been doing most of his mighty works in where he has been healing people, where he has been casting out demons. 
And he compares them to some of the most evil cities in the Old Testament. He compares them to Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. And he said, he said it would be better for those worst cities in the Old Testament than for these cities now. Because if the mighty works had been done in those cities in the Old Testament, they would have repented long ago and they would have been preserved. So what about that question at the beginning? Now that we have Jesus addressing doubt, now that we have him addressing disbelief, that question at the beginning, what do we do? What do we do with our doubts when they creep in? What do we do when Satan uses our doubts, marshals them against us, and attacks us? Well, first, we need to try to honestly assess, you know, our, our doubts. You know, are you doubting and actually seeking an answer? Are you looking for confirmation and a restoration of your faith? Or are you straying into unbelief like the Pharisees and the lawyers? Are you finding fault with all the answers that you are given? I want to be clear here. Disbelief in this sense is different from persistent doubts. We as Christians are attacked always by Satan where we are weakest. And if you are prone to doubting that Jesus doesn't love you, that's where Satan's going to attack you. And you might have to remind yourself of the truth 50 times a day, every day. You might have to go to Jesus with that doubt all the time because that's where Satan is attacking you. But that is different from un that's different from unbelief. It's different from disbelief. And the difference is in your motive for seeking the answer and the response when the answers are given. Because, you see, the motive for a doubter is to have their faith confirmed, to have their question answered. They want to believe. The motive for someone who disbelieves like the Pharisees is just to prove God wrong, to mock God and to mock the answers that he gives. Are you trying to prove God wrong? Are you mocking him with the answers that you're given about the doubts? That's a dangerous place to be. Very dangerous ground. Jesus says that Sodom and Gomorrah would fare better than someone who is persistent in unrepentant disbelief. And Sodom and Gomorrah was consumed by fire from heaven. And lest you think that that's just some silly story in the Bible, let me tell you, they have actually very recently found Sodom and Gomorrah. Within the past 20 years, they've found it. They've started excavating it. And you know what they found? They found that it was leveled by fire. They actually think that this meteor came out of the sky and did this airburst and burned everything to the ground in an instant. And you might ask yourself how a book written in around 1200 B.C. was able to accurately, accurately depict what happened to a town that was so deep in sin 800 years prior to that. No. 
If it describes you and you're in unbelief, you need to take an honest look at yourself and you need to take an honest look at the veracity of God's word. And you need to repent. And you need to pray that God will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. But I would say be of good cheer. Because it's God that grants repentance. It's, it's God that moves our heart. It's God that makes them alive. And if you are moved to pray like that at all, he is already at work in you. You would not be moved to pray like that if he wasn't. Keep persisting in that. Don't stop pushing. Don't stop praying. Don't stop repenting. So what about the other type of, of doubt that John uh, had and that the tax collectors and the people had? The, the doubt that when you're seeking confirmation for your faith, when you're seeking a restoration for your faith, it's easy to answer in general. You bring them to Jesus. You bring all of your doubts to Jesus and you let him answer them. And what that looks like specifically, really it depends on the particular doubt that you're experiencing. But start always by bringing it to Jesus in prayer. Pray and trust him that he will be gentle and gracious. He has shown you that he is. Voice them to him. Let him answer them. Do you doubt his sovereignty? Do you doubt his control over everything? Go back to the word. Read Psalm 139 and how all of your days have already been written in his book. Do you doubt his love for you? Go straight back to the cross and see him dying for you and read John's words as he says, it is finished. Go to Romans Romans chapter 6 through 8, if you are crippled by your sin and you have that doubt that you are too sinful for God to save, you are not. You are not. Because there can be no condemnation against God's elect. And if you are part of God's kingdom, you are part of his elect. Do you doubt the veracity of his word? Test it against history. You know, one of the greatest things uh, that's said about Jesus is that he is the new Adam, okay? And so Paul mentions that, you know, the original Adam was given this creation mandate. What's the creation mandate? The creation mandate is to be fruitful and multiply, to spread out over the earth and to subdue it. And what does Jesus do before his ascension? He gives the great commission to his disciples, and he tells them to go to all nations, to baptize all nations, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He sends his disciples out into the world. And who are his disciples? That is the body of Christ present on earth. That is the church that is going forth, fulfilling the Great Commission. And through the church, Jesus is actually bringing that creation mandate to fruition. And the church has since spread out over the earth. It's filled it and is subduing it for Christ, empowered by him as his body. And that is a historical fact. It's not something that you can explain away. 
Christianity should have died in its tracks as soon as its Savior died. And yet, it did not. Instead, it has gone forth and spread out over the entire world. Dear Christian, though Satan might assail you with doubts, know that Christ can and will answer them. He is gentle. He is gracious. You are his brothers and sisters. And he bears with you in your weakness. He bears with all of us in our weaknesses. He bears with us in our doubts. He understands them. He sees our hearts. And more than that, he will brook nothing. Nothing to come between his love and his people. In fact, further on in Matthew, Jesus says that it would actually be better. It would be better for anybody, including Satan, who caused one of his little children to doubt. It would be better if a millstone were hung around their neck and they were tossed into the sea. That is how passionately he loves you and how passionately he protects you. How then will he not answer every doubt that you have? No, Satan's end is sure. He might attack you now, but he will be judged for all of his attacks against God's children. So, dear Christian, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Christ has overcome the world, and your doubt is much, much smaller than the world. Much, much smaller than the world. Trust in your Savior. Trust in his work. Trust in his supremacy. Trust in his love for you. And use that to bolster your faith every day. Let us pray. Father, what a glorious thing. We don't have to be afraid when our doubts come. That we don't have to be afraid when we hear the voice of Satan accusing you to us, accusing us to ourselves, but instead that we can answer back to him. We can answer back that Jesus' blood covers us, that he has done it all and that it is finished and we are safe and secure in him. How wonderful it is that though we might doubt, you do not condemn us because you love us. Jesus, we praise you we praise you for your entire ministry, but especially your gentleness, your graciousness to us. The fact that even though, even though you are God, you embrace us as brothers and sisters. Holy Spirit, as we go from here, we ask that you drill this truth into our hearts. Keep it there. Keep us focused on our Savior day by day, moment by moment. Amen.